Section 22 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 1, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 20. A Victory for the Patriots. Literature lost some great names in the early part of George II's reign. William Congreve and Richard Steele both died in 1729. Congreve's works do not belong to the time of which we are writing. He was not sixty years old when he died, and he had long ceased to take any active part in literature. Swift deplores, in a letter to an acquaintance, the death of our friend Mr. Congreve, whom I loved from my youth, and who surely, besides his other talents, was a very agreeable companion. Swift adds that Congreve had the misfortune to squander away a very good constitution in his younger days, and upon his own account I could not much desire the continuance of his life under so much pain and so many infirmities. Congreve was beyond comparison the greatest English comic dramatist of his time. Since the days of Ben Jonson, and until the days of Sheridan, there was no one who could fairly be compared with him. His comedy was not in the least like the bold, broad, healthy, aristophanic humor of Ben Jonson. The two stand better in contrast than in comparison. Jonson drew from the whole living English world of his time. Congreve drew from the men and women whom he had seen in society. Congreve took society as he found it in his earlier days. The men and women with whom he then mixed were for the most part flippant, insincere, corrupt, and rather proud of their corruption, and Congreve filled his plays with figures very lifelike for such a time. He has not drawn many men or women whom one could admire. Even his heroines, if they are chaste in their lives, are anything but pure in their conversation, and seem to have no moral principle beyond that which is represented by what Heine calls anatomical chastity. Angelica, the heroine of Love for Love, is evidently meant by Congreve to be all that a charming young English woman ought to be, and she is charming, fresh, and fascinating even still. But she occasionally talks in a manner which would be a little strong for a barrack room now, and nothing gives her more genuine delight than to twit her kind, fond old uncle with his wife's infidelities, to make it clear to him that all the world is acquainted with the full particulars of his shame, and to sport with his jealous agonies. Congreve was the first dramatic author who put an English seaman on the stage, and after his characteristic fashion he made his Ben legend a selfish, coarse, and ruffianly lout. But if one cannot admire many of Congreve's characters, on the other hand, one cannot help admiring every sentence they speak. The only fault to be found with their talk is that it is too witty, too brilliant for any manner of real life. Society would have to be all composed of male and female Congreves to make such conversation possible. There is more strength, originality, and depth in it than even in the conversation in The Rivals and the School for Scandal. The same fault has been found with Sheridan, which is to be found with Congreve. We need not make too much of it. No warning example is called for. There will never be many dramatists whose dialogue will deserve the censure of critics on the ground that it is too witty. Of Steele, we have often had occasion to speak. His fame has been growing rather than fading with time. At one period he was ranked by critics as far below the level of Addison. Few men now would not set him on a pedestal as high. He was more natural, more simple, more fresh than Addison. There is some justice in the remark of Hazlitt that Steele seems to have gone into his closet chiefly to set down what he had observed out of doors, while Addison appears to have spent most of his time in his study, spinning out to the utmost there 
the hints which he borrowed from Steele or took from nature. Everyone, however, will cordially say with Hazlitt, I am far from wishing to depreciate Addison's talents, but I am anxious to do justice to Steele. There are not many names in English literature round which a greater affection clings than that of Steele. Lee Hunt, in writing of Congreve, speaks of the love of the highest aspirations, which he sometimes displays, and which makes us think of what he might have been under happier and purer auspices. Lee Hunt refers in especial to Congreve's essay in The Tatler on the character of Lady Elizabeth Hastings, whom Congreve calls Aspasia, an effusion so full of enthusiasm for the moral graces, and worded with an appearance of sincerity so cordial, that we can never read it without thinking it must have come from Steele. It is in this essay, Lee Hunt goes on, that he says one of the most elegant and truly loving things that were ever uttered by an unworldly passion. To love her is a liberal education. Lee Hunt's critical judgment was better than his information. The words to love her is a liberal education are by Steele and not by Congreve. They do not appear in the essay by Congreve on the character of Lady Elizabeth Hastings, but in a subsequent essay by Steele, in which, after a fashion common enough in the Tatler and the Spectator, one author takes up some figure created or described by another, and gives it new touches and commends it afresh to the reader. Steele was doing this with Congreve's picture of Aspasia, and it was then that he crowned the whole work by the exquisite and immortal words which Lee Hunt could never read without thinking they must have come from the man who was, in fact, their author. If literature had its losses in these years, it also had its gains. Not long before the time at which we have now arrived, English literature had achieved three great successes. Pope wrote the first three books of his Dunciad, Swift published his Gulliver's Travels, and Gay set the town wild with his Beggar's Opera. We are far from any thought of classifying the Beggar's Opera as a work of art on a level with the Dunciad or Gulliver's Travels, but in its way it is a masterpiece. It is thoroughly original, fresh, and vivid. It added one or two distinctly new figures to the humorous drama. It is clever as a satire and charming as a story. One cannot be surprised that when it had the attraction of novelty, the public raved about it. To say anything about Gulliver's Travels or the Dunciad, except to note the historical fact that each was published, would, of course, be mere superfluity and waste of words. In 1731, the first steps were taken in a reform of some importance in the literature of our legal procedure. It was arranged that English should be substituted for Latin in the presentments, indictments, pleadings, and all other documents used in our courts of law. The early stages of this most wise and needful reform were met with much opposition by lawyers and pedants. One main argument employed in favor of the retention of the old system was that, if the language of our legal documents were to be changed, no man would be at the pains of studying Latin any more, and that in a few years no one would be able to read a word of some of our own most valuable historical records. It was mildly suggested, on the other side, that there would always be some men among us who, either out of curiosity or for the sake of gain, would make it their business to keep up the knowledge of Latin, and that a very few of such antiquarians would suffice to give the country all the information drawn from Latin records which it could possibly require or care to have. We have had some experience since that time, and it does not appear that the disuse of Latin in our legal documents has led to its falling into absolute disuse among reading men. There are still among us, and apparently will always be, persons who either out of curiosity or for the sake of gain keep up their knowledge of Latin. The curiosity to read Virgil and Horace and Cicero and Caesar in the tongue which those authors employed is more keen than it ever was before. Men indulge themselves freely in it, even without reference to the sake of gain. Meanwhile, a change long foreseen by those who were in the inner political circles was rapidly approaching. 
the combination between walpole and his brother-in-law lord townsend was about to be broken up it had for a long time been a question whether it was to be the firm of townsend and walpole or walpole and townsend and of late years the question was becoming settled if the firm was to endure at all it must clearly be walpole and townsend walpole had been growing every day in power and influence the king as well as the queen treated him openly and privately as the head of the government townsend saw this and felt bitterly aggrieved he had for a long time been a much more powerful personage socially than walpole and he could not bear with patience the supremacy which walpole was all too certainly obtaining great part of that supremacy was due to walpole's superiority of talents but something was due also to the fact that the house of commons was becoming a much more important assembly than the house of lords the result was inevitable townsend for a long time struggled against it he tried to intrigue against walpole he did his best to ingratiate himself with the king he was a man of austere character and stainless life but he seems nevertheless to have tried at one time the merest arts of the political intriguer to supplant his brother-in-law in the favor and confidence of the king perhaps he might have succeeded it is at least possible but for the watchful intelligence of queen caroline she saw through all townsend's schemes and took care that they should not succeed at last the two rivals quarrelled their quarrel broke out very openly in the drawing-room of a lady and in the presence of several distinguished persons from hot words they were going on to a positive personal struggle when the spectators at last intervened to pluck them asunder in the words of the king in hamlet they were plucked asunder and then there was talk of a duel the friends of both succeeded in preventing this scandal but the brothers-in-law were never thoroughly reconciled and after a short time lord townsend resigned his office he withdrew from public life altogether and devoted his remaining years to the enjoyment of the country and the practical study of agriculture it is to his credit that when once he had given way to the superior influence of walpole he did not afterwards cabal against him or try to injure him according to the fashion of the statesmen of the time on the contrary when he was once pressed to join in an attack on walpole's ministry he firmly refused to do anything of the kind he said he had resolved to take no further part in political contests and he did not mean to break his resolution he was particularly determined not to depart from his resolve in this case he explained because his temper was hot and he was apprehensive that he might be hurried away by personal resentments to take a course which in his cooler moments he should have to regret nothing in his public life perhaps became him so well as his dignified conduct in his retirement his place in history is not strongly marked in this history we shall not hear of him any more colonel stanhope who had made the treaty of seville and had been raised to the peerage as lord harrington for his services succeeded townsend as secretary of state horace walpole the brother of robert was at his own request recalled from paris walpole the prime minister had begun to see that it would be necessary for the future to have something like a good understanding with austria the friendship with france had been a priceless advantage in its time but walpole believed that it had served its turn it was valuable to england chiefly because it had enabled the sovereign to keep the movements of the stuart party in check and walpole hoped that the house of hanover was now secure on the throne and believed with too sanguine a confidence that no other effort would be made to disturb it moreover he saw some reason to think that france no longer guided by the political intelligence of a man like the duke of orleans was drawing a little too close in her relationship with spain walpole was already looking forward to the coming of a time when it might be necessary for england to strengthen herself against france and spain and he therefore desired to get into a good understanding with the emperor and austria 
Walpole now had the government entirely to himself. He was not merely all-powerful in the administration. He actually was the administration. The king knew him to be indispensable. The queen put the fullest trust in him. His only trouble was with the intrigues of Bolingbroke and the opposition of Pulteney. The latter sometimes affected what would have been called at the time a mighty unconcern about political affairs. Writing once to Pope, he says, Mrs. Pulteney is now in labor. If she does well and brings me a boy, I shall not care one sixpence how much longer Sir Robert governs England or Horace governs France. This was written while Horace Walpole was still ambassador at the French court. Pulteney, however, was very far from feeling anything like the philosophical indifference which he expresses in his letter to Pope. He never ceased to attack everything done by the ministry and to satirize every word said by Walpole. At the same time, Pulteney was complaining bitterly to his friends of the attacks made on him by the supporters of Walpole. On February ninth, 1730, he wrote a letter to Swift in which he says that certain people had been driven by want of argument to that last resort of calling names, villain, traitor, seditious rascal, and such ingenious appellations have frequently been bestowed on a couple of friends of yours. Such usage, he complacently adds, has made it necessary to return the same polite language, and there has been more Billingsgate stuff uttered from the press within these two months than ever was known before. Swift himself had previously written to his friend Dr. Sheridan a letter in which he declared that Walpole is peevish and disconcerted, stoops to the vilest offices of hireling scoundrels to write Billingsgate of the lowest and most prostitute kind, and has none but beasts and blockheads for his penmen, whom he pays in ready guineas very liberally. One would have thought that beasts and blockheads could hardly prove very formidable enemies to Swift and Bolingbroke and Pulteney. One of the incidents in the controversy carried on by the ministerial penmen and the craftsmen was a duel between Pulteney and Lord Harvey. Pulteney and his friends were apparently under the impression that they had a right to a monopoly of personal abuse, and they resented any effusion of the kind from the other side as a breach of their privilege. Harvey had written a tract called Sedition and Defamation Displayed in a letter to the author of The Craftsman, and this led to a new outburst of passion on both sides. Pulteney stigmatized Harvey on account of his effeminate appearance as a thing that was half man, half woman, and a duel took place in which Harvey was wounded. Harvey was a remarkable man. His physical frame was as feeble as that of Voltaire. He suffered from epilepsy and a variety of other ailments. He had to live mainly on a dietary of ass's milk. His face was so meager and so pallid, or rather livid, that he used to paint and make up like an actress or a fine lady. Pope, who might have been considerate to the weak of frame, was merciless in his ridicule of Harvey. He ridiculed him as Sporus, who could neither feel satire nor sense, and as Lord Fanny. Yet Harvey could appreciate satire and sense, could write satire and sense. He was a man of very rare capacity. He had already distinguished himself as a debater in the House of Commons, and was afterwards to distinguish himself as a debater in the House of Lords. He wrote pretty verses and clever pamphlets, and he has left to the world a collection of memoirs of the reign of George the Second, which will always be read for its vivacity, its pungency, its bitterness, and its keen, penetrating good sense. Harvey succeeded in obtaining the hand of one of the most beautiful women of the day, the charming Mary Lapel, whose name has been celebrated in more than one poetical panegyric by Pope, and he captivated the heart of one of the royal princesses. The historical reader must strike a sort of balance for himself in getting at an estimate of Harvey's character. No man has been more bitterly denounced by his enemies or more warmly praised by his friends. Affectation, insincerity, prodigality, selfishness, servility to the great, contempt for the humble, are among the qualities his opponents ascribe to him. According to his friends, 
his cynicism was a mere affectation to hide a sensitive and generous nature his bitterness arose from his disappointment at finding so few men or women who came up to a really high standard of nobleness his homage of the great was but the half-disguised mockery of a scornful philosopher probably the picture drawn by the friends is on the whole more near to life than that painted by the enemies the world owes him some thanks for a really interesting book the very boldness and bitterness of which enhances to a certain extent its historical value at this time harvey was but little over thirty years of age he was the son of the first earl of bristol by a second marriage had been educated at westminster school and at clare hall cambridge had gone early through the usual round of continental travels and became a friend of george the first's grandson now prince of wales at hanover this friendship not merely did not endure but soon turned to hate harvey was an admirer of lady mary wortley montague and was admired by her but her own assurances which may be trusted to declared that there had been nothing warmer than friendship between them lady mary afterwards maintained that the relationship between harvey and her established the possibility of a long and steady friendship subsisting between two persons of different sexes without the least admixture of love harvey was in his day a somewhat free and liberal lover of women and it is not surprising that the world should have regarded his acquaintance with lady mary as something warmer than mere friendship we shall have occasion to refer to harvey's memoirs of the reign of george the second more than once hereafter and may perhaps now cite a few words which harvey himself says in vindication of their sincerity and their historical accuracy no one who did not live in these times will i dare say believe but some of those i describe in these papers must have had some hard features and deformities exaggerated and heightened by the malice and ill-nature of the painter who drew them others perhaps will say that at least no painter is obliged to draw every wart or wen or humpback in its full proportions and that i might have softened these blemishes where i found them but i am determined to report everything just as it is or at least just as it appears to me and those who have a curiosity to see courts and courtiers dissected must bear with the dirt they find in laying open such minds with as little nicety and as much patience as in a dissection of their bodies if they wanted to see that operation they must submit to the disgust harvey fought with spirit and effect on the side of walpole although lady harvey strongly disliked the minister and was disliked by him walpole had at one time it was said made unsuccessful love to the beautiful witty molly lepel and he did not forgive her because of her scornful rejection of his ponderous attempts at gallantry harvey nevertheless took walpole's side and proved to be an ally of some importance a great struggle was approaching in which the whole strength of walpole's hold on the sovereign and the country was to be tested by the severest strain walpole was as we have said more than once the first of the great financial statesmen of england he was the first statesman who properly appreciated the virtue and the value of mere economy in the disposal of a nation's revenues he was the first to devise anything like a solid and symmetrical plan for the fair adjustment of taxation sometimes he had recourse to rather poor and commonplace artifices as in the case of his proposal to meet a certain financial strain by borrowing half a million from the sinking fund this proposal he carried by a large majority in spite of the most vehement and even furious opposition on the part of the patriots it must be owned that the patriots were right enough in the principle of their objection to this encroachment on the sinking fund although their predictions as to the ruin it must bring upon the country were preposterous borrowing from a sinking fund is always rather a shabby dodge but it is a trick familiar to all statesmen in difficulties and walpole did no worse than many statesmen of later days who with the full advantages of a sound and well-developed financial system have shown that they were not able to do any better the patriots seem to have made up their minds to earn their title they fought the court 
or ministerial party on a variety of issues they supported motions for the reduction of the numbers of the army and they declaimed against the whole principle of a standing army with patriotic passion which sometimes appeared for the time quite genuine they brought illustrations of all kinds applicable and inapplicable from greek and roman from french and spanish history even from eastern history to show that a standing army was invariably the instrument of despotism and the forerunner of doom to the liberties of a people the financial policy of the government gave them frequent opportunities for using the sword of the partisan behind the fluttering cloak of the patriot on both sides of the house there was considerable confusion of ideas on the subject of political economy and the incidence of taxation walpole was ahead of his own party as well as of his opponents on such subjects his followers were little more enlightened than his antagonists in seventeen thirty two there was presented to the house of commons an interesting report from the commissioners for trade and plantations on the state of his majesty's colonies and plantations in america with respect to any laws made manufactures set up and trade carried on there which may affect the trade navigation and manufactures of this kingdom from this report we learn that at the time there were three different systems of government prevailing in the american colonies some provinces were immediately under the administration of the crown these were nova scotia new hampshire the jerseys new york virginia the two carolinas bermuda bahama islands jamaica barbados and the leeward islands others were vested in proprietors pennsylvania for example in maryland and the bahamas and the two carolinas had not long before been in the same condition there were three charter governments massachusetts rhode island and connecticut in which the power was divided between the crown and the population where the people chose their representative assemblies and the governor was dependent upon the assembly for his annual support which as the report observed ingenuously has so frequently laid the governor of such a province under temptations of giving up the prerogative of the crown and interest of great britain the report contains a very full account of the state of manufactures in all the provinces new york for example had no manufactures that deserved mentioning the trade there consisted chiefly in furs whalebone oil pitch tar and provisions in massachusetts the inhabitants worked up their wool and flax and made an ordinary coarse cloth for their own use but did not export any in pennsylvania the chief trade lay in the exportation of provisions and lumber and there were no manufactures established their clothing and utensils for their houses being all imported from great britain for the object of the whole report was not to discover how far the energy of the colonists was developing the resources of the colonies in order that the government and the people of england might be gratified with a knowledge of the progress made and give their best encouragement to further progress the inquiry was set on foot in order to find out whether the colonists were presuming to manufacture for themselves any goods which they ought by right to buy from english makers and to recommend steps by which such audacious enterprises might be rebuked and prevented this is the avowed object of the report and we find governor after governor assuring the commissioners earnestly and plaintively that the population of his province really manufacture nothing or at all events nothing that could possibly interfere with the sacred privileges of the english monopolists the report significantly recommends the house of commons to take into consideration the question whether it might be expedient to give these colonies proper encouragement for turning their industry to such manufactures and products as might be of service to great britain and more particularly to the production of all kinds of naval stores the proper encouragement given to this sort of productiveness would imply of course proper discouragement given to anything else the colonies were to exist merely for the convenience and benefit of the so-called mother country a phrase surely of sardonic impressiveness 
such however was the common feeling of that day in england it was so with regard to india it was so with regard to ireland the story of the pelican was reversed the pelican did not in this case feed her young with her blood the young were expected to give their blood to feed the pelican the real strain was to come when walpole should introduce his famous and long-expected scheme for a reform in the custom and excise laws walpole's scheme was inspired by two central ideas one of these was to diminish the amount of taxation imposed on the land of the country and make up the deficiency by indirect taxation the other was to reduce the customs duties by substituting as far as possible an excise duty walpole would have desired something like free trade as regarded the introduction of food and the raw materials of manufacture let these be got into the country as easily and freely as possible was his principle and then let us see afterwards how we can adjust the excise duties so as to produce the largest amount of revenue with the smallest injury to the interest of the consumer and with the minimum of waste his design was that the necessaries of life and the raw materials of manufacture should remain as nearly as possible untaxed and that the revenue of the country should be collected from land and from luxuries we do not mean to say that the plans which walpole presented to the country were faithful in all their details to these central ideas one scheme at least which he laid before parliament was positively at variance with the main principles which he had long been trying to establish but in considering the whole controversy between him and his opponents the reader may take it for granted that such were the principles by which his financial policy was inspired he had been moving quietly in this direction for some time he had removed the import duties from tea coffee and chocolate and made them subject to inland or excise duties in seventeen thirty two he revived the salt tax the bill which was introduced on february ninth seventeen thirty two to accomplish this object met with a strong opposition in both houses of parliament walpole's speech in introducing the motion for the revival of the tax contained a very clear statement of his financial creed where every man contributes a small share a great sum may be raised for the public service without any man's being sensible of what he pays whereas a small sum raised upon a few lies heavy upon each particular man and is the more grievous in that it is unjust for where the benefit is mutual the expense ought to be in common the general principle is unassailable but walpole seems to us to have been quite wrong in his application of it to such an impost as the salt tax of all the taxes i ever could think of he argued there is not one more general nor one less felt than that of the duty upon salt he described it as a tax that every man in the nation contributes to according to his circumstances and condition in life this is exactly what every man does not do the family of the rich man does not by any means consume more salt than the family of the poor man in proportion to their respective incomes pulteney knocked walpole's argument all to pieces in a speech of remarkable force and ingenuity even for him there was something honestly pathetic in his appeal on behalf of the poor man whom the duty on salt would touch most nearly the tax he said would be as one shilling a head for every man or woman able to work to a man with a family it would average four shillings and sixpence a year such a yearly sum may be looked upon as a trifle by a gentleman of a large estate in easy circumstances but a poor man feels sometimes severely the want of a shilling many a poor man has for want of a shilling been obliged to pawn the only whole coat he had to his back and has never been able to redeem it again even a farthing to a poor man is a considerable sum what shifts do the frugal among them make to save even a farthing had all pulteney's speech been animated by this spirit he would have made out an unanswerable case the objection to assault tax in england then was not so great as in india at a later period 
but the principle of the tax was undoubtedly bad while the general principle of walpole's finance was undoubtedly good the question however was not argued out by pulteney or any other speaker on his side upon such a ground as the hardship to the poor man the tyranny of an excise system of any excise system its unconstitutional despotic and inquisitorial nature this was the chief ground of attack sir william wyndham sounded the alarm which was soon to be followed by a tremendous echo he declared the proposed tax not only destructive to the trade but inconsistent with the liberties of this nation the very number of the officers who would have to be appointed to collect this one tax would be named by the crown and scattered all over the country would have immense influence on the elections and this fact alone would give a power into the hands of the crown greater than was consistent with the liberties of the people and of the most dangerous consequence to our happy constitution the bill passed the house of commons and was read a first time in the house of lords on march twenty second the second reading was moved on march twenty seventh and a long debate took place not the least interesting fact concerning this debate was that the leading part in opposition to the bill was taken by lord carteret who had returned from his irish government and was beginning to show himself a pertinacious and a formidable enemy of walpole and his administration carteret outshone even pulteney and wyndham in wholesale and extravagant denunciation of the measure he likened it to the domestic policy of cardinal richelieu by which the estates of the nobility and gentry were virtually confiscated to the crown and the liberties of the people were lost it would place it in the power of a wicked administration to reduce the english people to the same condition as the people in turkey their only resource will be in mobs and tumults and the prevailing party will administer justice by general massacres and proscriptions all this may now seem sheer absurdity but for the purposes of carteret and pulteney it was by no means absurd the salt tax was carried through the house of lords but the public out of doors were taught to believe that the minister's financial policy was merely a series of artifices for the destruction of popular rights and for robbing england of her political liberty walpole had long had in his mind a measure of a different nature a measure to readjust the duties on tobacco and wine it was known that he was preparing some bill on the subject and the excitement which was beginning to show itself at the time of the salt tax debate was turned to account by the opposition to forestall the popular reception of the expected measure the cry was got up that the administration was planning a scheme for a general excise and the bare idea of a general excise was then odious and terrible to the public whatever walpole's final purposes may have been there was nothing to alarm any one in the scheme which he was presently to introduce nobody now would think of impugning the soundness of the economical principles on which his moderate limited and tentative scheme of fiscal reform was founded the coming event threw its shadow before it and the shadow became marvellously distorted pulteney speaking on february twenty third seventeen thirty three with regard to the sinking fund proposal talked of the expected excise scheme in language of such exaggeration that it is impossible to believe the orator could have felt anything like the alarm and horror he expressed there is a very terrible affair impending pulteney said a monstrous project yea more monstrous than has ever yet been represented it is such a project as has struck terror into the minds of most gentlemen within this house and into the minds of all men without doors who have any regard to the happiness or the constitution of their country i mean that monster the excise that plan of arbitrary power which is expected to be laid before this house in the present session of parliament sir john barnard one of the members for the city of london a man of great respectability capacity and influence ventured to predict that walpole's scheme would 
turn out to be his eternal shame and dishonor and that the more the project is examined and the consequences thereof considered the more the projector will be hated and despised of all this strong language walpole took little account he meant to propose his scheme he said when the proper time should come and he did not doubt but that honourable members would find it something very different from the vague and monstrous project of which they had been told in any case he meant to propose it accordingly on wednesday march seventh seventeen thirty three walpole moved that the house should on that day week resolve itself into a committee to consider of the most proper methods for the better security and improvement of the duties and revenues already charged upon and payable from tobacco and wines on the day appointed wednesday march fourteenth the house went into committee accordingly and walpole expounded his scheme it was simply a plan to deal with the duties on wines and tobacco and walpole protested that his views and purposes were confined altogether to these two branches of the revenue and that such a thing as a scheme of general excise had never entered into his head nor for what i know into the head of any man i am acquainted with there was in the mind of the english people then a vague horror of all excise laws and excise officers and the whole opposition to walpole's scheme in and out of the house of commons was maintained by an appeal to that common feeling walpole's resolutions with regard to the tobacco trade were taken first and separately it will soon be seen that the resolutions concerning the duties on wine were destined never to be discussed at all what walpole proposed to do in regard to tobacco was to make the customs duty very small and to increase the excise duty to establish bonded warehouses for the storing of the tobacco imported into this country and meant to be exported again or sold here for home consumption thus to encourage and facilitate the importation to get rid of many of the dishonest practices which injured the fair dealer and defrauded the revenue to put a stop to smuggling to benefit at once the grower the manufacturer the consumer and the revenue we need not relate at great length and in minute detail the history of these resolutions and of the debates on them in the house of commons but it may be pointed out that wild and absurd as were the outcries of the patriots there yet was good reason for their apprehension of a growing scheme to substitute excise for land tax or poll tax or customs walpole was as we know a firm believer in the advantages of indirect taxation and of the introduction as freely as possible of all raw materials for manufacture and all articles useful for the food of the nation he was a free trader before his time and he saw that in certain cases there was immense advantage to the consumer and to the revenue in allowing articles to be imported under as light a duty as possible and then putting an excise duty on their distribution here walpole was perfectly right in all this but his enemies were none the less justified in proclaiming that the proposals he was introducing would not end in a mere readjustment of the tobacco and wine duties walpole's first resolution was carried by two hundred and sixty-six votes against two hundred and five the government had won a victory but it was such a victory as walpole did not care to win he had been used of late to bear down all before him and he saw with eyes of clear foreboding the ominous significance of his present majority he knew well that the opposition had got the most telling cry they could possibly have sought or found against him he knew that popular tumult would grow from day to day he knew that his enemies were unscrupulous and that they were banded together against him on many grounds and with many different purposes every section of the nation which had any hostile feeling to the house of hanover to the existing administration or to the prime minister himself made common cause against not his excise bill but him the tobacco resolutions were passed and a bill to put them into execution was ordered to be prepared on april fourth the bill was introduced to the house of commons and a motion was made that it be read a first time much however had happened out of doors since the day when walpole introduced his resolutions even at that time 
there was a great excitement abroad which brought crowds of more or less tumultuous persons round the entrances of the house of commons the troops had to be kept in readiness for any emergency that might arise the least thing feared was that they might have to be employed to keep the access to the house clear for its members by the time the first division had taken place the tide of popular passion had swollen still higher as walpole was quitting the house a furious rush was made at him and but that some of his colleagues surrounded protected and bore him off he would have been in serious personal danger but the interval between that event and the introduction of the bill had been turned to very practical account by those who were agitating against him and the country was now in a flame of excitement the craftsmen and the pamphleteers had done their work well the most extravagant consequences were described as certain to follow from the adoption of walpole's excise scheme a minister once allowed to impose his excise duty upon wine and tobacco and thus shrieked the mouths of a hundred pamphleteers and verse-mongers he will go on imposing excise on every article of food and dress and household use nothing will be able to resist the inquisitorial excise man it was positively asserted in ballad and in pamphlet that before long the excise man would everywhere practice on the daughters of england the atrociously insulting test which was attempted on wat tyler's daughter and which brought about wat tyler's insurrection the memories of wat tyler and of jack straw were invoked to arouse popular panic and fury strange as it may seem now these appeals were successful in their object they did create a popular panic and stir up popular passion and fury to the uttermost height not even walpole attempted any longer to argue down the monstrous misrepresentations of his policy the fury against him and his excise scheme grew hotter every day and at one time it was positively thought that his life was in danger tumultuous crowds of people gathered in and around all the approaches to the house of commons several members of the house who were known to be in favour of the ministerial scheme complained that they had been menaced insulted and even assaulted and the house had for the security of its own debates and the personal safety of its own members to pass resolutions declaring that this riotous behaviour was destructive of the freedom and constitution of parliament and a high crime and misdemeanour in the house itself certain tactics with which parliament has been very familiar at a later period were tried with some effect various motions for adjournment and other such delay to the progress of the bill were made and pressed to a division it was becoming evident to every one that the measure was doomed and the hearts of the leaders of opposition rose with each hour that passed while the spirits of the ministerialists fell walpole never lost his head although he well knew that a certain any damaging failure was now awaiting him he still proclaimed that his measure could be hurtful to none but smugglers and unfair traders that it would be of great benefit to the revenue and the nation that it would tend to make london a free port and by consequence the market of the world he spoke with scorn of the riotous crowds whom some had declared to be merely respectful petitioners gentlemen may give them what name they think fit it may be said that they come hither as humble suppliants but i know whom the law calls sturdy beggars the common council of london spirited on by a jacobite lord mayor petitioned against the excise scheme and its example was followed by various municipalities in the kingdom walpole acted at last according to the principle which always governed him at such a crisis he had the courage to abandon the ground which he had taken up and which he would have been well entitled to maintain if argument could prevail over misrepresentation and passion with that cool contempt for the extravagance and the ignorance of the sentiment which thwarted him he abandoned his scheme and let the mob have its way on wednesday april eleventh seventeen thirty three it was made known that the government did not intend to go any further with the bill exaltation all over the island was unbounded church bells rang 
windows were illuminated bonfires blazed multitudes shouted everywhere if england had gained some splendid victory over a combination of foreign enemies there could not have been a greater display of frantic national enthusiasm than that which broke out when it was found that hostile clamour had prevailed against the minister and that his excise scheme was abandoned frederick the great has enriched the curiosities of history with an account which he gives of the abandonment of the bill according to him george the second had devised the measure as a means of making himself absolute sovereign of england the excise bill was intended to put him in possession of a revenue fixed and assured a revenue large enough to allow him to increase his military power to any strength he pleased it only needed a word of command and a chief for revolution to break out walpole escaped from parliament covered with an old cloak and shouting with all his might liberty liberty no excise thus disguised he managed to get to the king in st james's palace he found the king preparing for the worst arming himself at all points having put on the hat he wore at malplaquet and trying the temper of the sword he carried at Oudenarde. george desired to put himself at once at the head of his guards and try conclusions with his enemies walpole had all the trouble in the world to moderate his sovereign's impetuosity and at length represented to him with the generous hardihood of an englishman attached to his master that it was only a choice between abandoning the excise bill and losing the crown whereupon george at last gave way the bill was abandoned and the crown preserved this scene is of course a piece of the purest romance but it is certain that the passions of the people were so thoroughly aroused that a man less cool and in the true sense courageous than walpole might have provoked a popular outbreak and no one can say whether the crown of the brunswicks might not have gone down in a popular outbreak just then time and education have long since vindicated walpole's financial principles but the passion the ignorance and the partisanship of his own day were too strong and prevailed against him end of the first volume end of chapter twenty end of a history of the four georges in four volumes volume one by justin mccarthy recording by pamela nagami september two thousand and fifteen